Welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, the song that played me in is titled Obtain. It is from the album Anything Can Be Left Behind, and it is by Michael Cormier or Leary, who is my guest today. And you can get that record at Dear Life Records or Michael's Bandcamp, and both of these things are in the show notes. All things that we discuss in this episode are in the show notes. Michael has uh, a couple of projects. He has two bands, he has his solo work, and he has a label. He's a busy guy, and I don't think I achieved that much by the time I was his age, or even by this age that I am at now, which is fucking old. Either way, this is a great episode. Michael and I have um, messaged back and forth for a couple years. I've had some artists from his label on my show, and um, I've been wanting to make this happen, and it finally happened. And it was great, and a couple a couple times, you know, when you talk to one of those people who are uh, super smart and educated, a couple times you go, or me, I go, ooh, can I hold on here? <laughs> can I hang in there? But uh, he's great. He's a wonderful human being, a great musician, a great songwriter, and he's got a great label. So check all those things out in the show notes, lab- links to everything. Um, and speaking of links to things, you can go to themattdwyer.com, which is my website. And soon, probably this Monday, when this episode comes out, the following Monday, I will have started my blog, which is more than likely going to be on Substack. But you can go to themattdwyer.com and find it. And I am going to be writing a lot of sort of memoiristic short pieces. Uh, my teen years were pretty insane. I grew up around Second City. Um, was around a lot of larger-than-life people, ended up in some pretty insane situations. Some of the people, wildly famous like Chris Farley or Stephen Colbert, and some just uh, weird hoodlums and drugged-up blues musicians, all kinds of stuff. (laughs) I had a real fucking weird life. And, you know, I won't be... I won't lie to you. It's still fucking weird. It's just different than the drug-induced years. Um, So please keep an eye out for that and subscribe to that when that comes out. And um, you could also become a Patreon subscriber because I'll probably be posting this stuff on Patreon as well. Um, And if you need a website, you can go to the kellyrdwire.com, kellyrdwire.com. She does a lot of websites. She does, like, big websites, bigger than mine, like um, Ologies with Allie Ward, which is a big, big, big... It's like one of the biggest podcasts and it's great if you're into science and truth i would say listen to it and that is all for my intro um i'm hoping i have a couple more episodes i'm doing i I, i'm recording with tim ratuli of califone in a couple days that'll be next week's episode but things are getting really busy here in saint paul for me so i'm hoping i can hang on to the podcast but who knows i might have to do it intermittently um, unless he's, somebody wants to give me $1,000 a week or $2,000 a week, that would be great. If not, well, then I might have to do this intermittently for a few months until I get some footing. But we'll see. It might keep coming. I hope so. Now, please enjoy my episode with Michael Cormier O'Leary.
this the tale of moving your mom's house to back to Philly? Is that the situation that's happening? No. Um, <laughs> well, I love to no. start with misinformation. <laughs> I like. I'm curious what that information is, but that's not quite it. There's a guy. No, my wife's been in. My wife's been in grad school up here for the past two years. Oh, um, that's cool. So yeah, we moved here in 2021 20, for her to do that, and then uh, now she's wrapping it up, and we just want to be back in Philly, so we're going back. I thought, and maybe I'm insane. I thought you you got your mom's house, like the house that you grew up in, or am I, or am I totally fucking out? Oh of no, I wrote a. I, well, I wrote a song about that, but I, it's not true. <laughs> it's made up. It's made up. <laughs> oh, for some reason, I thought I saw in an interview that that also was the case, but I didn't. And uh, no, and I, I, I mean, I grew. I, I did grow up in Maine, but it, yeah, I'm not. I don't own a house. <laughs> oh well, the song is very believable. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've interviewed a couple other people who had similar situations. That's why I was like that whole returning to where you grew up and then having I don't know that's it, just uh, it can be a mind fuck at least for me. Oh yeah. Well, there was an element of that to yeah. I grew up in Maine, but we ended up moving to a town I basically spent no time in. I got to move closer to the internet. Um. But yeah, no, that song in particular, yeah, it's totally fictional. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I was going to ask you what draws you, draws you to some of your subject matter, because I really, I love it, but it's, you're like, you have an interesting approach to subject matter. Like there's the, the first song on your new album, I was like, this is great, but you're singing about joggers and they're, and, and I don't know, I love it. But I was wondering what sort of sub, what, how do you pick your subject matter? Gosh, I mean, it probably changes song to song, but, um, like that song in particular, I was just kind of trying to riff on what I consider the soak up the sun model, which is just like a pure bliss track. Um, and, so I was trying to do my version of like a springtime bliss track. Um, but also I guess with a lot of what I write, it's like there is still kind of an acute awareness of like ugliness, even when things are good. And then when things are bad, still trying to find something redeemable. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, do you have so, like a pessimistic streak or why, why do you think that like when things are good, you know, it's not, it, well, yeah, I mean, when things are good, I'm always, you know, there's always an element of like, well, how long is it going to last? <laughs> I can relate uh, fully. So I think that that's pervasive, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it pessimism. Just like, I don't know, acute awareness. I don't know. There's like a, I think I read a while ago, like there's a Dostoevsky quote that's like 
something about like the disease of consciousness of just like being like too aware. <laughs> I think that happens a lot where I just end up noticing kind of more detail than sometimes is maybe healthy. But it's, also, um, it's, there's a, it's reality really. Mm-hmm. Like when everyone's like, and then they live happily ever after. I'm like, no, they didn't. Cause somebody fucking died. <laughs> well, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I guess part of my answer to your question too is like, I do just, I, I read a lot of fiction and I watch a lot of films and that's definitely kind of informed some of the sub, the subject matter. And like, you know, books often are, I mean, it's just the nature of the medium. You can kind of just get so deep into some kind of minute stuff. And I, and you know, there are songwriters that I love that are able to do that too, but it's a, obviously you have just much less time, but, um, but yeah, it happens in films too, where it's like, well, the movie ends, but I mean, yeah, I'm always asking the question when you're watching a movie, like, Oh, well, how are they, how can they afford to do any of this right now? You see all this action, but I don't know. Suspension of disbelief. But, uh, I find like, yeah, I, Oh, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was just no, like no, with no. the film, like I prefer the unhappy ending and, or like, like a serious man, it ends and it's like, it's a pretty, Oh fuck ending of like, oh, this yeah. isn't good. <laughs> and I feel like that's life. And in a weird way, I find that comforting. Me too. No doubt. And Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even find engaging with, with um, that sort of reality as like, oh, I think everything is terrible. But I do like want to... F- be able to feel that, you know, like, I don't want to not feel that kind of range of emotion. Cause I feel like it is, I'm, I'm going to feel it one way or another begrudgingly or not. Uh, and I feel like art is kind of a safe way to feel it Yeah, without the stakes being so high. <laughs> it's also like, I mean, Buddhism isn't viewed as pessimistic or whatever, but that's exactly sort of, exactly what it is it's like hey it's all sucks and so (laughs) find some peace and joy but know that that's temporary as well yeah i mean that that's just that kind of thinking just abounds on this new record just because it is about just things ending and i don't know i think from like a narrative perspective i'm always more interested in a narrative that like is starting at an ending versus like starting at a beginning. I've, I just find things not being the way they were is kind of, a, for me, a more interesting jumping off point than be like, let me tell you about everything that happened. I, <laughs> most of what happened didn't really, it doesn't matter so much but so much can happen when you know something is ending. And a lot of these songs, yeah, I wrote when I was leaving Philly to come here. And it's funny that the record is now out as I'm preparing to leave here and go back there. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think you could pinpoint where you came, where where that started to inspire you starting with the ending of things? Cause I find that interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, or what? At what point in the writing process? Or yeah, or yeah, in your creative process, where that started, that started be, become something that you were attracted to, starting at the ending. I think. I mean, since I've like seriously tried to write songs, which is only since like twenty eighteen or so. Um, I don't know. I wrote my first record that I put out is all about like, I don't know. I tried to just limit myself to writing about childhood memories and basically only as I could remember them, which was kind of already inherently, uh, like flawed. And there was, there was already mismemory and holes in memory at play. And, and I kind I mean, I liked that. That was kind of like what got me really excited about writing. And that was coming from reading a lot of Virginia Woolf too. Um, who she definitely gets really fixated on like clinging to what she can actively perceive because um, a lot of, a lot that's beyond that is kind of outside of, she doesn't have access to it. Um, so she becomes really fixated on like what's immediately around her. Um, so I think, yeah, from a, like, I think it's always kind of been at play, but then I just kind of changed the setting a lot. Um, but I think a lot of my like songs with words are pretty fixated on like, uh, in the, the impermanence of things. <laughs> uh, but yeah. And it, I don't know. I don't think it's always, I think I'm, it's often, there is a lot of hope in that too, but it is because things ending, I mean, some things should end and that's, you know, a good. <laughs> yeah. Who, what other writers inspire you? Cause I've read that you'd liked Virginia Woolf and I've realized I've never read her. I've only seen the the film with Richard Burton or who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, which wasn't written oh, yeah, by her yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She yeah, she was big for me in college. I I ended up reading a lot of her then, um, and just, and kind of similarly, like other sort of like British modernist writers, like Catherine Mansfield is another great one. Um, I mean, just because I did feel like a kinship, because they're the generation that kind of they they were coming from like a more Victorian tradition and Virginia Woolf literally her earliest books are just kind of they are essentially Victorian novels um which is just full of like rules and you know all the things you can and can't say and can and can't do and a pretty strict like societal structure but then I feel like this generation of writers then World War One happens and it is kind of just like the obliteration of like everything they were told is like correct and like how to live a correct life. And they're just kind of like thrown into the, into the abyss in a way. And that gets really reflected in how they write because they kind of, they give up on like external structure and, and really turn inward to like, well, literally what am I experiencing? Um, and I just felt that sort of kinship, I guess, growing up with like baby boomer parents who they 
they had parents who were really like, we have to live a certain way. And then their generation was trying to like push back on that. But then it kind of left them the generation I'm in sort of just, yeah, like with a, with a way more impressionistic sense of like, well, half the rules we're told are made up by people who <laughs> want to just continue to be in a position where they can make up rules. I don't know. It's just like, yeah, just a really acute awareness of that, that these structures are not impenetrable. And so I think I found a lot of solace in reading people like Wolf, um, who was reckoning with the same thing a hundred years earlier. For me, as an early college student, I got a lot out of reading kind of the like, um, just the, the real like mental intimacy that Wolf's books offer. You're really just like lodged into her head, just seeing and perceiving what she sees. Um, and the fact that that feels really like defiant was pretty inspiring. Um, that that sort of immediacy was like, uh, she was kind of using like her immediate perception to push back on what was kind of a suffocating landscape for her as a, as a female author in, you know, the 1920s. <laughs> Do you find yourself attracted to the writing of, uh, female authors over male? Cause you listed a couple women. That's why I was asking. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I mean, I don't, yeah, it's not, I definitely read probably more women than men but it's not that I don't read men too, but I'm a big Alice Munro fan as well. Um, short story author from Canada. Yeah. I just, I did the typical when I was young, like the, well, somebody gave me Bukowski and it was kind of before Bukowski became the cool guy to read. But that, mm -hmm. that, and then, of course, I was like, oh, the beats, because I was just like, that's cool, right? <laughs> and not to say they aren't, but it's just like kind of classic dumb guy stuff to get into. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, read, I read that stuff too. Because so. <laughs> uh, you also mentioned film, and I was curious what, what filmmakers uh, who, who you like in that department. Yeah, I mean, I mean, most topical because i just saw her newest movie but big kelly reichardt fan um who just makes some of my favorite yeah some of my favorite films and who's just so unafraid to move so slowly <laughs> it's just like some of the most compelling slow cinema i've seen uh so she's she's big i'm a big fan of one movie in particular by the director Edward Yang. He has a movie called Yee Yee that came out in like 2000. It's like a, he's from Taipei, Taiwan. Um, but Yee Yee just is this like totally expansive, it's like over three hours, but it is just this one family, but every single character just has such incredible depth. Um, and it's just, you know, in a way it's a classic thing where it starts at a wedding, ends at a funeral sort of, sort of movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, he just, uh, it, it, to me, it feels like kind of the textbook example of doing that. Right. Um, 
And it is, I think, in, in part just because of how much depth. Like from there's like an eight year old boy up to you know the uh, an elderly woman, and just feels like he just imbues so much depth with all of them. And I do think that's like maybe the Quixote, the Quixote goal I have with, <laughs> with songs is like, can you how much can you squeeze in? Because it's literally just it's not a three hour film. It's you know it's a three minute song and. Uh, <laughs> But I do I always kind of hold out hope more like character depth. Cause I think that is, you know, I, maybe it doesn't even make for great songs, but I love the idea of like having songs feel like the voice is coming from this, uh, from a, from a, from a depth that maybe is surprising or, or that upon repeated listens, you are like, understanding more and more about the voice because because at least with the past couple records i mainly just use details about myself to like just paint a clearer picture but the like i is kind of more and more infrequently me um which just opens up a lot um have you entertained the idea of doing a, a longer work be it music or be something else a narrative like a i mean dream always dreaming of making a making a film but uh they're just key barriers to entry <laughs> so for now i why do you think i just uh, left fucking la <laughs> i just like thinking it. yeah <laughs> yeah and i have no i mean i don't I, I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, stay in your lane. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I've, you know, I've done, I write for myself in a long, in longer form ways, but for now it's still a fun challenge to try to scratch those itches in, in the musical sphere, which I just am more equipped to do in every way. Have you thought about, doing larger music pieces that would sort of, you know, like a theme or concept album, I guess that's what the word I was looking for. <laughs> Cause I know you, you heard a lot of yes as a young person. So I figured 15 minute songs. Might... <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah, I guess not. Ultimately, um, I think instrumentally, I, I think about doing stuff like that. Um, but the idea, I don't think I really get that into concept albums. I mean, the big, the biggest like long form single thought album that I do care a lot about is probably Sufjan's uh, Illinois album. Um, I mean, that just was like a, earth-shattering experience for me as a high schooler to hear that music and like it does it is a really kind of rigorous long-form project but also they're still songs like you know it feels and i think that's i i have a hard i don't even i'm not a scholar on concept albums <laughs> but I, I wouldn't want to listen to an album that's like that feels like a I don't know, like a musical or something. <laughs> um, 
yeah. like I care about I care about songs, you know, and and that form. But I think there are compelling ways to connect songs in a way that can feel like a a more singular piece. Yeah, uh, yeah. I know Owen Ashworth wanted to make films, and then mm-hmm. he ended up writing. That's why he does so many story songs because he's like, I couldn't just easier <laughs> it's like you can get one of these made you can't it's true and i mean he is a massive he's a massive inspiration as somebody who uh yeah i mean he's telling stories as rich as i mean richer than plenty of mo- movies that get made right now so <laughs> you know yeah you could watch if it's between Ant-Man and <laughs> and Dolores and Kimberly, I'm going to take Dolores and Kimberly. <laughs> I I like you like where you said like slow and expansive films and like like somebody says if to me if a movie's 3 hours or 4 hours long like the new Scorsese movie supposedly 4 hours long and I'm like great cuz he's <laughs> he's a great filmmaker like I have no problem with this. Yeah. But like I don't do you like Scorsese? Um, I plenty I have liked. Yeah, I, I watched The Irishman earlier, like last year, and that was a movie that honestly, if it had just been the last forty-five minutes when he's in the retirement home, <laughs> I I think I would have liked that more than the <laughs> three and a half hours <laughs> that preceded it, but. <laughs> uh, well, but no, in general, I like I like Scorsese. <laughs> I personally, I've seen it a few times, at least not all in one sitting, twice in one sitting. But I've really like watching it repeatedly. There's a lot of things I didn't notice the first couple times that just like simple camera things and just like or not mm-hmm. simple, like just interesting choices that are just kind of like I can get lost in that sort of shit for for days. Totally. But my, I guess. Uh, now I forgot what the fucking point was. <laughs> well, you're excited for the new four-hour Scorsese movie. <laughs> oh, just is like... That, is, it, is, it, is that a Western? Is that... No, it's about... Uh, uh, it's about... No, it's like in the 30s or 40s. And it's about... Okay. It's based on some book where there's murders of indigenous people and the FBI doesn't... Sort of like today, where the oh. FBI doesn't want to investigate it. So... <clears throat> Shocking. Um, but I, I was, uh, fuck, I forgot what my point was, but I'm interested. God damn it. I mean, you were talking about expansiveness and feeling okay. Like, I don't know, trusting Scorsese to oh, I guess not I, waste four hours of your time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess I, I was trying to get to the point of like, if, uh, that, there aren't, you were saying like there aren't a lot of films that appeal to, or being made that appeal to you these days. And I was like, well, I don't know. And I don't either. And that's why I find myself reading more books, I guess, because I'm like, well, this is, I can get what, there's a lot of books I can get stories from that I will like because <laughs> <laughs> film is, is dead in my opinion. Yeah, I, well, I, I wouldn't go that far. I, think I will, there's... and I'm going to stand by this. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm a big Sean Baker fan too. He's Have you seen? Fucking yes, yeah, he's the he, one of the few humans out there where I'm like, oh, there's hope. There's hope. Yeah, he he really he's been pretty inspiring. Um, no, people are doing it. It's just there's you. 
there's a lot that I'm not interested in as well. But that, I mean, we live in just such a deluge of uh, media anyway that I think that's the reality of like every form because there's just too much and a lot won't matter. Uh, just, yeah, I mean, you just have to be discerning. You know, I think that's... I want to put you at ease. They're making Fatal Attraction into a series. Don't you feel better now? <laughs> I do. I feel great about that. <laughs> I saw that and fucking blew my top. Because I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. They power to him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted... I did want to go back to the yes and the music that you grew up with a kid. Cause you, cause I found that interesting that you were, I guess it was basically the yes and the who, what else was being played in your home? Yeah. I mean, my dad was definitely, yes, the who, I mean, all the Woodstock bands and then, yeah, he kind of pivoted in the seventies towards more like, uh, like King Crimson, I guess what is now what you'd call like prog rock. He kind of, he pivoted from like the hippie Woodstock bands to like the, yeah, the Robert Fripp sort of zone. Um, but he's also the one who showed me Tom Waits at a very early age. And that is like instrumental for me. Um, on it even just more so as I get older, um, because I sing like Tom Waits, you know, you heard the record. I, I use the Tom Waits voice. No, I, that's a joke. I know it's his, you know, his voice can, you know, cause all sorts of tension, but truly it, he's kind of, a, it, he is massively inspiring as somebody who he literally sings in different voices and different songs. And, uh, that kind of like, yeah, felt helpful for me in, as a singer to realize like you can sing your words any way you want to, <laughs> like you can, you can choose delivery, um, which that rocks. And he's just a brilliant, I mean, his songs, I, I have limited patience for the like circus music stuff, but also <laughs> if he, if he didn't do it, I'd be a little sad. So but he, you know, his ballads are like some of my favorite songs ever written. I'm a huge fan, but I see like the thing you said about his voice. It's like people think it's limited or whatever, but it's like, he's very versatile with that fucking crazy weird voice. Yeah. I mean, he, I would say within even just one album, he's doing like six different voices and then across his career, he's probably done like 30 different voices. <laughs> <laughs> he's the man really rocks. What, what was the first, Tom Waits album that came across your path because that's there's such a there's so many different like there's the early and the late the first one yeah. I heard was Rain Dogs and it blew my yeah. fucking brain like I was just like what oh, yeah. the fuck Rain Dogs is the first one that I like chose to get excited about but my dad is a big Nighthawks at the Diner fan it's a like fake it's like a fake live album that he did do in a studio, but there is like an audience there and he's pretend like it's presented as if it's him live, but it's not him live. And it's just him with a piano trio. And it is most like beat Nick Tom vibes, but he, 
So that's technically the first one I heard and heard the most. And then when I was like choosing to explore more of it, yeah, Rain Dogs was the first. And it's just, I mean, it's unimpeachably good. Um, and I still, I mean, I'm a big, I, I, there are different branches of Tom that are exciting to talk about where like Rain Dogs has the best, like Tom Waits does a pop rock song. I mean, like, cause you got downtown train on there, which is just exceptionally good, but you also got like, he does like hang down your head is another one. It's like a really short song but it's just a song that like I could never forget and I would always have to play it again just cause it would end before I wanted it to. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't know. I love that on an album like rain dogs, you've got like cemetery polka. That's <laughs> and then you also have, and then you have, you know, downtown train uh, anywhere, you know, it's, it's a great album, but where I'm at at this moment is, I think Bone Machine is the best one. That's your favorite? It's from Bone Machine is is right now my tops. And that's, it's oscillated. I used to listen to that one in high school a bit, but I didn't really get it. And it was kind of scary because it is his like death album. But, <laughs> um, but now I'm just eating it up. I, I it, it sounds perfect to me. It's like what I kind of hope all future records I can make sound like just the fidelity is really special. Um, I guess, you know, mid fi is probably <laughs> what people would say because it, it, it doesn't necessarily sound good. And for a dude who easily had access to much better recording situations, yeah. I they recorded in like a, like an old office, like the drums are in like a closet of an office it's like really dry. It's like a dry record. Um, but yeah, it's just got like kind of some of his most demented songs and some of like the song, a little rain is just one of the most beautiful songs he ever did. So yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Bone machine. But. I'm going to have to revisit. It's been a minute since I've listened to that one. And I, I go through spells with him every like, couple couple times a year where i'll be like well it's just tom waits face now <laughs> yeah. yeah i i i've been listening pretty pretty steadily now for the past four or five years and, and this newest album i definitely was able to employ stuff i've learned from him definitely in the songwriting zone and impossible as a postcard i was the third song on the record i was kind of trying to touch on you know what a band of his could sound like um the sharpness of the guitars when he he, he always has these like kind of like razor thin guitar tones that i love so uh because yeah. you you sort of I, the, your voice because i've read that you it took you a while to sort of find your voice and as a singer and it, cause you said you like mimicked people for a while. I believe I've read that unless I once again oh, yeah. got shit wrong. <laughs> oh, I'm still, I'm still mimicking people, but it's like, it's easier to, it's easier to contextualize the mimicry. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I feel like, Oh boy, man, if you could have seen me as an early performer 
it was embarrassing who I was mimicking and not even mimicking, just copying. And it was embarrassing and sad. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But I'm not saying you did that, but I feel like that's part of the process until you figure out what the fuck you're, it's like, it's not like you're born and you have your voice, but singing particularly interests me because I don't know, like guitar, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like you have something to sort of protect you where your voice that you sing with is fucking undeniably who you are and it's hard to fake. And I was, I know I was wondering how you sort of, did you, how you became comfortable with that or is it still like this process? It's a process, but I've made a lot of peace with my voice. It's a good Um, voice, by the way. I like it. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's been hard because I mean, yeah, I want it to sound like I mean, I want it to sound like Will Oldham forever and then but I'm not Will Oldham. <laughs> you know. Uh, um I wanna sound like Joni and I definitely don't sound like her. So I don't know, it's like I don't know, I've made a certain piece with just um and yeah, I mean, in Tom, I'm, I actually don't want to sound like Tom, but what he's taught me a lot is that, yeah, you can just choose, you can make creative decisions about how you deliver words and it just opens it all up. Um, and yeah, I just, I don't know. I've gotten to a point where, yeah, it used to just be the part of me that I was hearing in my voice was always like what felt the most embarrassing and I think I've learned now that like literally when I hear other people saying the part that I like the most is always the part where it's clearly them. Uh, and I have realized I can ascribe that same generosity to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's, uh, it's interesting because your voice is your voice. You have no control over like guitar you could do all kinds or piano you could do all kinds of shit but your voice you have to sort of hear accept and like i don't know learn some tricks i guess but like it seems i don't know maybe i'm fixating on this too much but like it seems like a complicated thing to discover it doesn't seem like you just go oh and then that's your fucking singing voice (laughs) Uh, you know, maybe some people do, but mine has not been that way. It's been hard. And I just, you know, lacked the only like training I had was just being in like choirs singing like Beethoven, (laughs) (laughs) which, which that, I don't know. My, I didn't, you know, I just, I was just hitting the notes and like, I don't know, there's all this stuff like mouth shape and like you can deliver things correctly. And, And I've learned a lot of helpful stuff recently for like, you know, like forming how to form consonants and vowels. So you're like getting to the note in, in easier ways and supporting stuff with your, like you can improve, you know, but also I wouldn't want to improve to a point where it's like, listen to my perfect voice. Cause I don't listen to anybody who really has a perfect voice, but yeah, there's um, Elvis Costello took lessons at some point and it's like a definitive definite. I don't, it's a definite difference. You can hear like from his projection from early mm -hmm. Elvis Costello to like, I think kind of like the late eighties, nineties. He definitely, like when he started working with Burt Bacharach and shit, he was like trying to be a more of a belter, I think. 
Yeah. I mean, I noticed the same trajectory with Will Oldham, who the early palace stuff is like, uh, he's got a frail voice and you can hear just over the course of his records. He clearly learns how to sing. <laughs> but, and, and, and there are, and there are arguments that like sometimes the frailty is more affecting, but for me, I think a lot of his later stuff where he clearly does have a lot more control and power is still really moving to me, but there's marked a market difference between that earlier stuff and and what he's doing now. I wonder how and much he's one of I mean, he's one of my favorite singers alive right now. It's amazing. Even yeah, so but I wonder how much of that is you're a new singer, you're not maybe secure as well as life experience. Like you listen to early Sinatra, late Sinatra, even some of the same songs, he sings in a different manner. Like what he record, like he due to life experience, which is actually something I read. That's not an observation. (laughs) (laughs) I am not that smart. (laughs) I believed you. You didn't have to tell me. I know, but I'm. I I don't want to be a bullshit artist. But I find that fascinating too. Like, like World on a String or whatever, for example. Like, I guess once he was more like weary of life, and like he sang it with a different tone, and I was like, that's fucking insane to me. But like that's using your voice yeah. as the instrument to tell your story, I guess. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't know. In general, I and I am trying to ascribe this to myself, but like I like hearing changes in artists. I like um, evolution, devolution. I don't know. Like <laughs> all of it. Like I don't think. I don't know. I my favorite quote unquote like discographies are the ones where there's just such wild zigzags. You know, Bob Dylan's the same way. I love Bob Dylan as a singer for the same reason I could say I love Tom Waits, which is he's doing so many voices. You know, it's a you can make the joke, oh, he's got a bad voice, but like it's not. It's really, really good. And he's literally choosing different voices every album. And it's uh, I think all of them are great, although some are better, you know, some land a little better, but um, I don't know. I couldn't imagine if Bob Dylan for the past 60 years just sang one way. Like, it, it, I don't think it would work so well. Do you, when you choose the voice that you sing in, or do you choose it? Or does the song that you write and the story that you're telling within that song dictate the voice you're going to? singing um it's yeah i wouldn't necessarily say it's the most conscious front of brain thing but um certain songs like on this record the last song old mike is definitely like really tiny voice for me whereas the first song here comes spring was like I was just belting. I mean, each song definitely feels like it needs that. Um, So I think the song does kind of point me in the direction, but, um, but it's not just like, yeah, sometimes it's just connected to like the mood 
you know, maybe the mood of the, what the chords are doing a lot of work for me and how I determine the, the emotion. Cause the, normally the chords are coming first and then words and then a melody and then, and then the words do the like sharpening. If it's like a, you know, if it's a sculpture, <laughs> you know, it's like, first the material exists in like this block shape and then the words kind of do the like sanding down. And, um, but I think there's already like emotional content in it that can point my voice towards the sort of delivery that I think helps achieve that emotion. How did, uh, just, I want to change gears cause I do want to ask you about dear life, the, the label you started because a, it's great, mm-hmm. but I wonder how does one get inspired to start a label and what, how has that process been? Well, yeah, it's more than I ever anticipated. <laughs> but, <laughs> and you have uh, like some great artists and like some folk MJ Lenderman fucking took off like a motherfucker. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and that was a very articulate yeah. statement on my part. <laughs> yeah, that was a yeah. That's all that Bukowski Kerouac is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, your Bukowski is showing. Um, yeah, I mean, I started it just because I, I don't know. As an artist, I have differing impulses, and was sort of feeling like it would behoove me to have a single place to be able to release music of my own that could vary greatly over time. Um, so that was the start and I was inspired by, I don't know, I was just inspired by a, a few friends, tape labels. Um, I had friends in Philly who had a label called sleeper records. Um, and then my friend Ben in Rochester had a label called Lily Tapes and Discs. And then Owen with Arundel was a big inspiration too. Um, so those, I mean, seeing them all do that made me feel like I could do it. Cause I, I am organized, which is for honestly half of it. <laughs> uh, so that was the start of it. But then I don't, I think I, in general, like I'm not that solitary a creature. I like having people involved. So it just happened so quickly where I'd hear something I was excited about and I'd reach out Shane Parrish, uh, who's an Athens, Georgia based guitarist. Um, was the first person I like reached out to who I like did not have any connection to. Um, but I was, he was doing this huge reinterpretation of folk songs for solo guitar that I loved. And and it just, yeah, I mean, it definitely ballooned from there. And by the time I was working on Kath Bloom's last album, um, is kind of when I connected with Frank Meadows who runs the label with me and, he was really helpful in making that record happen. And I basically invited him to just join working on the label. Cause I was kind of burning out at that, at that point, it had become a lot of work for one person to do. 
Um, so, and it was the pandemic. So it, uh, I had more money coming in from unemployment than I had ever had <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of time to focus on the label. And, and so all of those things combined. And then, yeah, I mean, we had, we had met Jake, my band friendship had, uh, met him, I guess, 2018 or something, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It, none of us really saw, uh, saw what has happened since coming, <laughs> but, um, it's, yeah, it's been a, it's been a real, it's been a real ride. And I don't know. I just glad that it is just the three Frank, John and I, it's the three of us kind of following our, our intuitions and, and just music we're really excited about. And it's nice to see that clearly a lot of other people are excited about the same sorts of stuff. Um, I've maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm nuts, but it seems to me, or it appears to be that there's been a lot of smaller labels starting up over the last couple of years. And maybe it's the pandemic. I don't know. But like, I find that exciting that people are sort of going, fuck it, let's do this. And, do it ourselves mm-hmm. because yeah I, I mean i would say to anybody like even if you start a label or not like the resources are i did not know how to do any of this at all <laughs> That's, I still, which is great i still don't really know a lot <laughs> but uh <laughs> i don't know they, the resources are available and and truly what makes a difference is like even one uh, attentive mentor who for me was basically Owen. Um, just somebody who can like say, Hey, where the heck should I buy this from? Or do you know so-and-so who writes about this sort of music? You know, it's just like, I don't know. I think sharing information is invaluable. And also the internet I would say has a good quality, which is you can connect to a lot of people that you otherwise don't know in your immediate, uh, circles. Um, it seems and a lot, a lot of folks are just trying to help. And I've, I've been helped by a lot of people in this process. And i so it feels like the least I can do. <laughs> but, I, uh, I think I talked to, to Lindsay Reamer about that. Like, bands connecting more like like almost like there's many scenes that solely exist in the internet like she's friends with wednesday mm-hmm. and like that's all just because of the internet. it's like instead of hanging out in a piss smelling club with beer on the floor <laughs> <laughs> the scenes are a little bit more internet-y which maybe that's wrong right or inaccurate i don't know but it's kind of cool to me that these little worlds ex- exist yeah no i, I mean it's I don't think there's a way you could be like the internet is totally bad or totally good, especially where like arts communities are concerned because definitely there are entire, I have so many relationships that I have at this point that are only on the internet. But if I go to the place where they are, it's real. I meet them and we hang out and I don't know essentially everyone I meet is 
they seem on the internet. I know that could not be true, but I've, I've had a good track record so far. <laughs> speaking of Lindsay, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, speaking of Lindsay Reamer, and uh, because when you, I, she did my podcast, you were inspired by my word, use of the word fucked up and wrote a song and I was like why isn't that on, uh, not to sound bitter oh, why, yeah. is, why isn't that on a new album what happened there <laughs> I'm not serious <laughs> it's it's uh, no I'm happy I was it's um, it's just not there yet it, I had I had probably 15 or 16 songs that I could have used on this record but that one yeah I haven't gotten there yet it's not, I would, I would say that it's not off the table, but it is just not finished yet. <laughs> I, it was, uh, I, I liked it. Uh, I believe Lindsay asked your permission or you, maybe you sent it to me. I can't remember. Oh uh, yeah. She, she asked me about it, but no, yeah, I, I'm, I, I would say don't lose hope, but it's, uh, it's not ready yet. <laughs> I just, uh, I've never had, uh, something my weird way of speaking used to uh, inspire a song. Uh, it it was just really it was really funny to me that exchange. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a, I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing to say, and I mean that with total warmth. <laughs> but like <laughs> to sum something up as as like the fuckingness of it all. I don't know. It just, it tickled me and I couldn't shake those words. So I had to <laughs> try to figure out like, cause, cause it sounds, I don't know. I'm curious what you think it means. Like, <laughs> like it's just like complete, like abandon, like abandoning all. I can't remember uh, what context I used it in, to be quite honest. And I often just, maybe it's out of, poor education or something. Sometimes I just make up sort of fuck around and make up my own words because I don't know how to say something fancy. <laughs> it's really, uh, I would, uh, to me, it was really evocative, uh, but also sort of like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't have, quite the words for it but when you said it i was like wow that is a thing to say i'm gonna have to go and listen it to really... it. i honestly wish i could remember what context i used it in and i've used the word before i've said that word before or variations on it i think why i like it is just that i i don't even have like a definition for you of like this is what it means but it it speaks it speaks volumes uh and i think that's why i like it is like um, I don't know the classic I, I hear all the time where it's like here's a word in a non-English language that is presenting a concept that we don't have a single word for in English you know there are all words like this where it's like oh in German this means this specific expression of a feeling that in English we would just have to use multiple words to express the same feeling. Yeah. So I think that's what it, it that's what it did for me was like <laughs> it had a meaning that I felt and understood without even being able to really say like oh because you mean 
this. So yeah, it was just a very evocative word. And I think I get frustrated. I think I, I think I can still get a song out of it if it makes you feel better. But <laughs> I was just playing around. But I, I was—I mean, I was flattered that it that it even happened on a minuscule that it, it inspired something in you because uh, yeah, I, I I don't think of myself as often as a, an inspiring individual. <laughs> When I, if and when I get it, I'll I'll send you the final the final version. It's just that I had it had a good chorus, but the verses weren't cohesive enough. But we'll get there. I have great faith only because I think you're a very good songwriter, and I love your album, and I love <laughs> I love your music, and I love that. I mean, I love your label, and I just I don't know. You do a lot of good things, and I'm going to throw this at you. You're handsome. You got a good face. <laughs> Thanks. A married handsome face. Let's make sure that you. <laughs>